Hello and welcome to Reading Between the Lines, the story podcast from the People's Friend in association with the Oddfellows. Each episode, a few of us from the Friend team delve into our archives to find a story to read and then sit down for a wee chat about it. So, make yourself a cuppa, pull up a chair and come join us. This episode, we're reading A Cinema Star by Nora Buxton. First published on the 13th of March, 1920. Reading the story is Friend Features Editor Alex. Over to Alex. I'm going to be a cinema star. She simply won't be in it with me, remarked Sadie, laying down the portrait of a famous cinema actress and punctuating her remarks with a thump of her small fist full in the face of the great artiste. Julian Dent raised his eyebrows. Oh, and what makes you think you can act? Didn't you see me in the amateur theatricals at Wentworth last week? I was there all three nights. That's what made me ask. Dent knocked the ash off his cigarette, and with a glint of amusement in his eyes, watched the warm pink steal up into Sadie's small oval face. You're such a deadly stuffy crowd here. You would never do anything except go backwards and forward to a dull office, occasionally playing a game of bridge in the evening. Anyway, I've had enough of it. Dick Henniker says I should make my fortune on the stage, and Monty Benson says he will take me up to town next week and give me an introduction to the manager of one of the big film companies. You're the only person who thinks I can't do anything, except keep myself neat and tidy, dust my bedroom and do a little shopping. Oh, Julian Dent, you make me tired. She smoothed out the crumpled cinema star and looked intently into the pretty, almost speaking face. Then she crossed over to the mirror above the fireplace. I'm every bit as good looking as that young woman there, and I've even got better eyes than she has. She turned her great brown eyes upon Dent, brimming over with mischief. Dent was very susceptible where Sadie was concerned. He had been more or less in love with her for several years now, and Sadie, though she teased his life out and was on occasions decidedly insulting, had a very warm spot in her heart for him. You don't approve of my going? You'd like me to stick here all my life when I might be making a great name and hundreds a week. She looked across at the tall figure lying back in the easy chair, surrounded by a haze of blue smoke, at the strong, blunt features and close-clipped moustache, at the mocking hazel eyes, and decided that she should miss him dreadfully. Couldn't you chuck that dingy old office and come too? You might get a minor part, and it would be nice to have you near. Dent threw back his head and laughed. Well, of all the impertinence, I suppose you think I should be useful to wait upon you, to fetch and carry for the star... I fear that idea is out of the question. You see, the reason of my being discharged from military service was because since my father died, I'm the only one left to carry on the concern. I'm afraid a family of five couldn't exist upon the possible salary of a probable minor. Sadie laid her hand suddenly upon his shoulder. Oh, you poor old dear, I'd forgotten. I'm a beast, forgive me. Dent drew her down upon the arm of his chair and looked into the impish face. There are times when it would give me infinite pleasure to give you a jolly good shaking. You're very pretty, Sadie, but you're no good as an actress. You'll come a cropper, my child, but there will always be my fatherly shoulder to weep on when you return. Sadie straightened herself and slipped off the arm of his chair. I shan't require your shoulder or anywhere else's to weep upon. If I do come a cropper, I shall not come back here. They're all dead against it at home, but I did think you would back me up. Her voice was unconsciously wistful, and Dent, forgetting his irritation, felt suddenly sorry for her. After all, why shouldn't she try her wings? Failure would do her no harm. She had been flattered and spoiled ever since she had left school. There was nothing radically wrong. It was merely a bad case of swelled head. For a few moments, neither of them spoke. Sadie was ahead in the future, playing a leading part. Julian was turning things over in his mind, wondering whether he should speak. He had waited a long time for an opportunity to tell her of his affection for her. Though he stood the risk of losing her, this, he decided, was not the time to reason with her. 
And yet, the door opened suddenly and Monty Benson appeared. Sadie sprang up to meet him and fate added yet another victim to the horde of lost opportunities. Julian waited patiently, but Benson showed no signs of departing and feeling rather out of it, he rose to go. I'll see you out, exclaimed Sadie, following Julian from the room. In the dim light of the hall, they stood for a moment. He did not notice that Sadie was trembling slightly, and the light was not sufficient for him to see the sudden pain in her eyes. She held out her hand. Well, goodbye, Julian. I'm sorry you'll be away next week. I shan't see you again, but I suppose you'll still be here when I come back. The slight accent on the word still somehow nettled him. Oh yes, I shall be here. Goodbye and good luck, old girl. His hand was upon the latch of the door. She glanced up searchingly into his face, looking for something that was not there. Just the friendly, inconsequent smile. That was all. A chill gust of wind blew in, and with a little gesture of finality, Julian shut the door quickly and was gone. For a moment, the future star stood where he had left her. The piano sounded from upstairs. It was Monty amusing himself with snatches from the latest review. He played brilliantly, the lively, inconsistent music calling to Sadie as she stood there fighting back the tears that would come. As ever, she had relented five minutes too late. The music turned to a dreamy waltz. Sadie climbed the stairs slowly. Though she smiled bravely, her lips were quivering. Julian had not even asked her to write. Sadie's first week in town passed like a flash. It seemed to consist of a series of introductions and interviews by day, and theatres and restaurants by night. True to his word, Monty did all he could for her. The freedom and variety of her life, after the somewhat cramped existence of Wellchurch, was what appealed most strongly to her. She was surprised and a little hurt that none of the managers of the various film companies had made immediate demands for her services. Most of them inquired whether she had any previous experience of the stage, and one or two had smiled rather broadly when she had informed them that she had acted each year in the local dramatic society. However, they were all quite kind to her, though she was bound to own to herself that they were not exactly encouraging. She worked very hard, got very tired and occasionally very homesick, and once or twice on cold, wet nights, when she had no one to talk to or take her out, she was seized with an almost overmastering desire to write to Julian and tell him that she was not yet a star. She would put the word yet in to preserve her self-respect, which had dwindled considerably of late. Had Julian chanced upon her on any of these evenings of depression, he would have easily carried all before him, but he was extremely busy with his own affairs. Also, Sadie's people had in the meantime left Wellchurch and gone north to live, so that Julia knew nothing of Sadie's doings, for, with her sensitive pride, Sadie had managed to keep it from even Benson that she was not an overwhelming success. She got on very well with the people around her, the men in particular, from whom she got a fair amount of attention. Compliments of the blue fires that light up life's dingy scenery, she had once quoted to Julian at a dance, when she had been cutting her dances into halves to accommodate all the names that wished to appear on her programme. And Julian had laughed and made a note of it, and then told her he had never seen her in a dress that suited her less. But, in spite of his lack of compliments, he had seen that she had an excellent supper, and when her cab failed to turn up and there was no hope of securing one, he had taken off his overcoat wrapped her in it and carried her the best part of the way home because the roads were muddy. These were the thoughts that crowded round her as she sat in her rather cheerless room, studying a part which she considered should have been given to someone much older and a great deal uglier than herself. The next day Monty came in to bid her goodbye and he was going out to Bombay for his firm and might be away for a year. It was not until she had been in London almost a year that Sadie owned definitely and honestly that she was a failure. That, instead of amassing a fortune, she was getting poorer. It was a very bitter pill to swallow after all her dreams of fame. Her disappointment was very deep, but she knew and owned herself beaten. 
she decided that now was the time to write and confess her failure to Julian, and straight away sat down and wrote a long, somewhat dramatic epistle, which she tore up the following morning and then put on her smartest clothes and went in search of a post in a government office. She secured the post, but at a small salary, and she was practically without experience of clerical work. Having arranged to start the following week, she went home for a short holiday. Her family were singularly concerned at her changed appearance and begged her to remain at home, but a sense of restlessness was upon her, made greater by her failure, and she duly made her appearance in the office on the date fixed. She was astonished and puzzled a few weeks later to receive a postcard from Julian Dent, headed New York. He merely hoped that she was doing well. He expected to be back in England in about six months and looked forward to seeing her again. The card, addressed to her old home, had been forwarded to her. She smiled rather ruefully as she read it over, wondering the while what business could have taken him to New York, but she felt distinctly cheered at the thought of seeing him again. She threw herself strenuously into her work, the monotony and dryness of which threatened at times to overpower her. Her chief relaxation at this time was an evening spent at the cinema. The picture seemed to have an extraordinary fascination for her. She seemed to take a morbid pleasure in seeing the various stars she had once met to eclipse, and it was on a drab November evening some months after, following a day of mistakes and minor annoyance at the office, that she was wending her way home to her rooms, when turning into the Strand she walked into Julian Dent. For a moment she was afraid that he was going to pass her. She knew she had altered, that she was not nearly so smart as formerly, and had lost her old vivacious impertinent manner, but he did not pass. Why, he exclaimed, it's the cinema star. And he took her hand in a grip that made her wince. Summoning all her reserve courage to her aid, she answered him laughingly. Not even an embryo star, sir, merely a clerk at your service. And her lower lip quivered. Then it was that Dent guessed at the keen disappointment underlying her light words. Now, he went on, where shall we go and what shall we do? What about tea somewhere and a good talk? And then the pictures? Sadie glanced at him quickly. It's hardly tactful, she thought, to suggest that. Still, perhaps he didn't think. She readily acquiesced and was surprised to find how her weariness slipped from her as they talked. How things reversed themselves since their last meeting. Dent was doing all the talking now, cheering Sadie up, trying to raise her out of that sort of apathy that failure and uncongenial work had saddled upon her. During tea, Dent drew out bit by bit the story of the last 18 months. He seemed disinclined to talk about himself or his business in America. Why on earth didn't you write to me, Sadie? I would have done all in my power to help you. You shouldn't have let your pride stand in the way. Sadie carefully avoided his eyes. I did write once, but I tore it up. It's not much fun writing people to tell them that you failed. Julian rose from the table. Well, if you're ready, shall we go out? There's a picture on tonight that I'm rather keen on seeing. You won't be bored, will you? Sadie shook her head. Julian tucked her hand through his arm, and together they made their way through the foggy streets. There was an air of mystery about him that Sadie quickly sensed. There was also some motive in his bringing her there. Sadie decided that the pictures were very poor. Truth to tell, she was not taking particular notice to them. The man at her side was claiming most of her attention. He looked very bronzed and fit, and there was an air of alertness about him that she had never seemed to notice in the old days. She was anxious to question him about his trip to America, but there was a slight aloofness to his manner that held her back. Julian's voice roused her from her reverie, and she turned her eyes towards the screen. The big drama had commenced and Julian watched her covertly with his slow, detached smile. A man sat at a desk, his head bent. There was something strangely familiar about the head to Sadie. She narrowed her eyes and cast about in her memory, wondering where she had seen it before. Then suddenly the man raised his head, and the eyes from the screen looked straight into hers. They were Julian Dent's eyes. With a sharp exclamation of surprise, Sadie turned to her companion. Julian, why didn't you tell me? She said under her breath. Why should I tell you? 
You never told me about yourself. I'd prefer to let you imagine I was still going backwards and forwards to the stuffy office. It was my greatest ambition to act for the film, and there was an opportunity awaiting me, only I couldn't throw up the business and dismiss a lot of employees for the sake of a whim. It's all right now. I found an excellent man who's managing for me, but I had to wait some months for him. Julian broke off suddenly, for Sadie had buried her face in her hands and was biting her lips to keep the tears back. The girl sitting next to her had forsaken the drama upon the screen and was eagerly watching the one being carried on next to her. And it was at that moment that she discovered Julian's identity. But by the time the news had reached the end of the row, the cinema star and his companion had stumbled out of their places and were once more out in the murky London night. Julian hailed a taxi and, putting the astonished Sadie into it, said, Hampstead, to the driver and banged the door after him. A sense of adventure was stealing over Sadie, arousing her love of the unusual. Why Hampstead? she asked, as she carefully put her hat straight and fanned her hot cheeks. Why not? retorted Julian. It was the only place I could think of at the moment that was a convenient distance off. While we were asking questions, will you marry me, Sadie? In the flickering light, Sadie peered into his eyes. Her own were bright with tears. You really mean that you... You want me, me, a miserable crawling failure. As a failure, you're perfect. As a star, I should never have dared to approach you. Tell me, have you still a craving to be famous? Only as your wife, she replied, as the taxi pulled up with a jerk. A burst of the old spontaneous laughter broke from Sadie's lips. And now that we're at Hampstead, what do you propose that we should do? She looked up into Julian's face. The old whimsical smile that she loved played around his lips. I propose, Julian replied, to go straight back to town, catch the Midnight Express North, and tell your people that you have decided not to be a star after all. Reading Between the Lines is proud to be sponsored by Friendship Society, The Oddfellows. If you've ever wondered what being a member of The Oddfellows means, we're delighted to be able to share some first-hand answers. I'm Diane from Ipswich. I've only just joined Oddfellows last week, but already I've found myself getting involved with dancing, interesting talks, various other things, meals out. Um, I'm hoping that it's going to go from strength to strength and it is now getting me out of the house so that's how I found that Oddfellows is helping me. Hi, my name is Jane and I live in Alton. The Oddfellows recently helped my granddaughter and her family with a much needed recuperative break at the seaside following nasty burns to my granddaughter's legs which involved frequent trips to a specialist burns unit. She was so brave and she was delighted that her junior membership entitled her to an Oddfellows Convalescent Grant. If you recently retired and need inspiration to find a new routine, take a look at what your local Oddfellows friendship group has to offer. The Oddfellows want to help you make the most out of your retirement with social events, group holidays, volunteering opportunities and wellbeing support. To find out more about their retirement support, give them a call today on 0800 028 1810 or visit oddfellows.co.uk. It's time to start a new chapter of your life. Now, let's get back to the story. Let me top up my coffee, grab some of my friends and we'll have that little chat about it. That was A Cinema Star, expertly read by Alex, who can't join us today. However, we have Marion from the Features team. Hello, Marion. Hello. Jackie from our production team. Hello, Jackie. Hello. And Barry, DT Thompson archivist. Hello, Barry. Hello. Okay. A Cinema Star. I picked this out because I thought it would be like old Hollywood, glamorous, interesting. And then I read it. (laughs) And I was so enraged that I had to include it. I actually think, looking back through my notes, I think this was the first one I read from my archive trips. So I must have been like, oh no, <laughs> what have I let myself 
in for. Um, before I go on a tirade, though, uh, Barry, I feel like you'll have had a laugh with this one. So I want to start with you and your immediate impressions. I really like this story. And I know you're not going to agree. I mean, the plot, again, look, look, it's a people's friend story. It's in this era. And I think right from the off, we know how it's going to end. Or you should know how it's going to end. Uh, you know that they're going to end up together. You know that uh, Sadie and Julian are mm-hmm. going to end up together because there's that antagonism at the beginning. That's a sure sign that they're going to end up together. And I will admit that the way they end up together at the, you know, at the denouement of this particular story is slightly problematic, but I like the way they got there. That's not the take that I thought it was going to be. <laughs> Why, why, why didn't you like it? What was I, it? I thought, it's, you know, I thought it started out quite promising. Like Sadie was really fierce and independent. She was going to go prove everyone wrong and become a film star. And then she just kind of wilts and he completely steals her dream. And she's just content to live in his shadow forever. <laughs> it was, it was, I, it was horrific. Okay. <laughs> but what do Marion, Marion and Jackie, what did you think? I agree with you, Jackie. Thank God. There's some sense. Uh, at the beginning, there was hints, oh, is she going to make it in the end? Um, but I didn't ever really believe she would. And I thought she was a bit of a... I don't know what the right, correct word to use there. <laughs> um, disappointment. Yes. And especially the ending really disappointed me because he did totally steal her dream. and And she just goes along with it. Like, I really, really didn't, I, I didn't like it. In what way did he steal her dream? If well, he, I mean, not only did, I mean, as soon, he should have made her aware instead uh-huh. of taking her to the cinema and rubbing her nose in it. It's like, oh, I've got a surprise, you'll love. Oh, yeah, look, it's me on the I'm screen. I'm famous, you're not, ha <laughs> <laughs> ha. That is what, how I took it. It was a bit tactless. But tactless? I don't, but at the same time, at the same time, I, I don't think he stole her dream. He He went off to New York to... You know, Steal her dream. No, to, to find work. And <laughs> and at the heart of it, I think this is what this story is about. It's about hubris. And it's about um, somebody looking for this instant fame, this instant gratification based on looks, whereas he's gone the other route. He has, you know, he's had somewhere in the background, he's had this idea that he wants to be a film star, but he's gone about the right way. See, he's he's got somebody to cover for him at work. This is I think so, this, I think this is what the moral of this story is meant to be. I wish you had like we had like video for this because my jaw is just on the floor. <laughs> that I how you can have such completely different readings of it. That's so interesting. I I can't imagine at any period of life, even in life, even at this time, any woman reading this and being pleased with it. <laughs> Marion, did you have anything to add? I'm, I'm sort of processing Barry's take on this. Uh, yeah, it's an interesting one, isn't it? Because basically, you've got this girl. She starts out with her dream. She's got somebody presumably in the business to help her because I don't know who Monty is. Actually, we're not given much context about Monty yeah. and why he thinks he's got all these ins to a film star's life and why he abandons her in London. That's another avenue to explore later, perhaps. But she, you know, she goes for it. And she's t- confessed all to this guy, this Julian chappie, and he doesn't reciprocate. You think that even if it was in his head to do this, if they do have an equal relationship, mm-hmm. they would be exchanging dreams and ideas. Because if you're going to share your life, that's what you do, isn't it? Yes. Not in Julian's case. I completely agree. Julian hightails it off to New York and then puts her through the humiliation of yeah. this cinema experience. And like you said, Jackie, it was, ha ha, I made it, you didn't. <laughs> I don't know, how, I mean, how fully realised is this dream of hers? She's been in one play and she has a magazine about film stars. She likes movies, fair enough. Has she done the work? Has she put in the effort? Has she done the, the training? No, she's run off to wherever, the Bright Lights Big City, because she thinks she's pretty enough to get into movies. But this is 1920. Uh-huh. I mean, we don't have sort of drama schools and 
and sort of film academies and everything else. Yeah, but the big stars Stanislavski of the day. Big... Method acting in 1920. No, we, you don't. We have but... sort of people like Greta Garbo, who was a Swedish shop assistant who was discovered because she was pretty. That, that's fair enough. I mean, you still get that today. You still get people who are d- discovered, but the big stars of the day had been in music hall. They'd done their, their grounding. Um, and I'm not saying that Julian had, but I mean... I thought we were going to give him credit for at least doing this at a remove. He, he took himself off to New York. It wasn't like he followed her down to London and hung on her coattails to every audition that she went to and said, actually, if you're looking for a leading man, um, you know, she, I know she's not much abuse, but, uh, you know, as a, as a leading lady, but I, if you're looking for a leading man, me, he went off to, to New York um, at a point when they weren't in communication, I don't think. I never got the impression that he particularly that was what he was after doing I got the impression he just kind of accidentally did it because when she says like oh you could come with me and you know she was trying to share this kind of interest with him he completely rebuffed it as like oh no haha that's silly I don't want to do that so I'm like she's obviously very naive um she's an idiot yeah she's very naive (laughs) but I think and there's actually a few stories in the friend around this time that are all about this kind of like going off to London to become become a film star and it was just normal girls and women that did it and and so I get the impression I obviously don't know that at that time that was very much an in to film it's just you just had to turn up and be kind of pretty (laughs) so and and audition and things so Mm -hmm. I don't think the way she went about it was a complete ridiculous stretch but the producers that that she spoke to they weren't sneering exactly but I mean the fact that she could only fall back in this one amateur dramatic play as evidence of her acting ability um, would suggest that she's maybe not done the groundwork no she she was naive to think that was all she'd need Julian hasn't done much groundwork either to be fair but Julian not in acting well not that we're aware of in in plotting maybe (laughs) maybe but I mean, again, maybe that's half the battle. But again, um, Julian's backstory is a confusing one for me. Uh, if you go back through this, and this came out when? Early 1920. And we get told quite early on that Julian is managing the family firm um, and he's got this responsibility on his shoulders. There's a family of five to feed and his father died. And what it says is, the reason of my being discharged from military service because since my father died, I'm the only one left to carry on the concern. Mm-hmm. So this makes me think this is maybe written maybe a good deal earlier than this was published. And then maybe this was towards the end of the war when people were coming out of military service or were still expected to be to sign up. Um, and this kind of tells you why he's in this position of responsibility. He's had to take this on and he's not had a chance to realise his own dreams. He's been into the military and then pushed into this other concern. I don't think it was particularly well done if, if you know, if the writer had alluded to the fact that he himself had a, an inkling, an yeah. idea that he wanted to do something else, that that would have made a difference. But to me, this guy, he's been at the service of his country and his family and has had a chance to really think about what he wants to do. Did anyone else find their relationship quite confusing? Extremely. Oh, at the yes. very beginning, it was clear that she liked him. Um, and that he liked her. I think it, it's it's made clear of both of them. Although I did get an opinion that there was a bit of an age difference. Mm-hmm. I don't think it was based mm-hmm. on anything. It just, in my head, I felt that there was a bit of an age difference and I thought there was possibly a bit of a class difference between them if he's running a business now, his family business. But also, I immediately, at the very beginning, I thought, right, they're going to end up as a couple and then he says, you'll come a cropper, my child, but there will always be my fatherly shoulder to weep on when you mm. return. And I thought, well, that's a bit... Because it just didn't sit right with me as well, because on like just a few sentences later, um, he's going on about how much he likes her, basically. So I, I did think that that was a bit strange and confusing. Was that him trying to take her down a peg, do you think? But she was also really... He it was also condescending, wasn't very, but... He wasn't very encouraging to her either. It was like he pr- was really, really trying to put her off her dream. As, yeah. And, and you're, th- no good, you're no good as an actress, which 
you'd think would be a fatherly thing to say to save your child from kind of future pain. Actually, I'd hope my father wouldn't say it in no. that kind of unkind way. It's, it's, it's actually quite funny. Didn't you see me in the amateur uh, theatricals at Wentworth last week? I was there all three nights. That's what made me ask. That's, which is very that's funny. That's a very funny line. But also horrible. But, but this, you know, it's, it's a funny line antagonistic. if you've established the relationship. Yeah, yeah, I suppose. But you haven't but. at this point. And, you know, you can do that Spencer Tracy, Catherine Hepburn thing if you carry it off the whole mm-hmm. way through. But I don't think the story does. I think they try to do the knockabout stuff and it doesn't quite come off because it, it always struck me each time it happened as, okay, I can see this could be funny, but it feels unkind. It does. Mm-hmm. And and to pick up, because I had that underlined as well, the you'll come across on my child fatherly shoulder. <laughs> if you you can see, I literally just wrote, ew. Next <laughs> <time>. <laughs> Um, but that is something you do come across with the, a lot in these stories is the love interest male calling the female my child and the women are always presented as being very childish and needing either tamed or looked after or um, you know anything like that and I think it's the kind of those relationships are just that the love interest is also a fatherly figure which is a bit weird um, <laughs> Um, compared to some of the other stories we've had where you you do see the more equal relationships and this is very much I think uh, Jackie used that word earlier equal um, in terms of relationships and, and this is definitely an example of that where it's just entirely not and she ends up just wanting to be looked after that's a really interesting point you just made there Jackie because you just made me think that this is just after the first world war Mm-hmm. And as we know from the People's Friend stories in the First World War, you have got women doing all kinds of things in those stories. They're taking over from the men, they're being engineers, they're being bus drivers, they're doing all kinds of jobs, they're being extremely independent. They're taking on board the fact that there are a lot of men not going to come back and they're going to have to stand on their own two feet, not just now, not just in a few years' time, but probably forever. This is, you know, the generation of spinsters. Mm-hmm. And then you've got these totally wet characters appearing suddenly in the 20s it's like a little bit stay in your lane yeah (laughs) it's almost like get get back to your proper role the one you had before you started getting ideas above your station that that sums up this story for me because like I said she starts out so fierce and like actually quite a progressive character and she's like I'm gonna be independent I'm gonna make it myself and then by the end, just completely, it's almost like, no, that's not allowed. Like, that doesn't happen, basically. And I'm like, well, why not? And, yeah. <laughs> and weirdly, I mean, it seems to have been written by a woman. Well, I, I genuinely was like, I would not be surprised if this was secretly a man with a women's pen name. But Quite possibly. I mean, again, quite hard to track down the Nona Buxton. Yeah. Although I do see that this person has a couple of other stories against their name, all sort of, sort of show busy related. Oh, cool. uh, I think maybe a couple of novels, one called The Star Turn and All the World, World's a Stage. So there seems to be a, a oh, definite interesting. Theme. Mm-hmm. All it seems to be a yeah. theme there. But I mean, you know, all this all the stuff you're saying here is um, this is if if we're right, this is a woman writing about a woman. What's is at the end of this? Has she been told to find her place? Is that what you think's been said here? She's been knocked down a peg and, and sold. You know, come find your, go back to your place, your pre-war existence. Is that kind of the? That's kind of the feeling that's coming over to me. Yes, because tell me, have you still a craving to be famous only as your wife? <laughs> <laughs> so it's like, do you still have dreams? No, sir. <laughs> <laughs> Only if you lend them to me, sir. <laughs> it is a complete turnaround in her character because you're, you're spot on. She was very feisty. He was basically telling her she was useless. She refused to believe it. She went and she fought for her dream, didn't work out. And then all of a sudden she's like, oh, pathetic. The line I take the most issue with, and I think sums that up, is when she's like, he basically is like, marry me. He's like, you really mean that you want me, me, a miserable crawling failure? Who would... Ever speak, to themselves, speak about themselves like that. And especially Sadie, who at the beginning was no nonsense. Because um, I really I really like Sadie and I, I want more of her. <laughs> it's, it, in, in a way, it's quite sad because she was away for 18 months 
And she speaks about evenings of depression and things like that. And it's just like she really has, she's completely defeated. Yeah. Mm. She's been, she's been broken by her experiences. But it's, but it's almost and like he's now taken advantage of it. So, you know, now is the time that I'm going to tell her how I feel. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know if the, the transformation is that severe. I mean, she seems fairly self-sabotaging in the early stages as well. I mean, she, there's a couple of times where they're putting each other down. This is, this is a relationship of antagonism. Mm-hmm. And again, yeah, maybe it's not been as well fleshed out as it could have been. There could have been more to it and a bit more uh, comedy maybe uh, involved here. But it is a it is a relationship of antagonism. And they do like to wind one another up. But you can see from some of the early sort of uh, early salvos really that, you know, as, as Julian's leaving the room, you know, she's she's full of regrets, and she she realised that she's she's well. They both they both made a mess of things. You know, he could have said more, she could have said more. They both didn't because that's the nature of the relationship. So yeah, I've no I've no doubt that she she loves him and wants to be with him. I just question her choices. <laughs> <laughs> um, or did Julian? Hang on, did Julian go and become an actor because he couldn't? He feels he wasn't worthy of it. If she, he, he expected her to be a... Did he actually expect her to be a success? No. You don't think so? No. 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 Absolutely not. Not from the way he was putting her down. <laughs> he, was, he, was, he, was, he was waiting for... And he, does he not say, like, oh, why didn't you, you know, tell me I would have looked, have looked after you or whatever? Um, and like, even, like he should, because like, he's the man. He should... I would have done all in my power to help you. Yeah. It, it, it's just kind of making her think again, I need a man to rely on. Mm. And... You see that even when when she's in London and she's she does write the letter to him to be like, oh, it's not worked out, and she rips it up. And I'm like, the fact that she couldn't be honest with him means that she knows the kind of person he is. Do you know what I mean? It's 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 not help that you want when it's kind of backhanded. Or so if they'd yeah. both kind of done wrong here, she should have sort of said no. You know, I don't want to. I don't want someone who's going to do this to me. I don't want to be with you. And yes. he shouldn't. He shouldn't have proposed. He shouldn't have proposed, and she shouldn't have said yes. So nobody's winning. They don't. They they shouldn't be together. <laughs> wow. Okay. Julian. Julian shouldn't be with anyone. <laughs> he is horrible. He's an actor, darling. <laughs> I can't help feeling there's no happy ever after for this couple. I agree. No, surely not. He he insults her. Her acting. He patronizes her. What is? It's the most. Oh, he bundles her up and carries her off in the rain at one point. Oh, yeah. And we're meant to admire that. Yeah, after all, why shouldn't she try her wings? Failure would do her no harm. She's been flattered and spoiled ever since she's left school. So it's just that, like, oh, go on then. But uh, I actually don't have words. (laughs) But but he had been more or less in love with her for a long time. More 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 or or less. less. He's not thoroughly convinced, but she'll do. That's one of my favourite lines, yeah. More or less, yeah. They're both, they're both settling, is what we're saying. It's, oh, it's just... It's just his attitude as well. I mean, mm-hmm. it, lines like, there are times when it would give me infinite pleasure to give you a jolly good shaking. Yeah. You can't say things like that. Well, no. not now. No. <laughs> I want to know what was in Hampstead. Oh, yeah, oh, you're, cu- oh you're curious <laughs> now. Well, that would make all the difference. <laughs> Every speech that he has is is horrific. This is now that we hit Julian Club. <laughs> it seems to be. Well, I'm, I'm, I'm going to save a bit for Monty. Oh, you don't like... I think, I think I, I Monty's just... also a villain of this piece. Yes. Because he takes this girl down to London, introduces her to a couple of people, and then they completely leaves her to her own devices. That is She fair. is really struggling, and he doesn't come back on the scene and, you know... You have to do Bombay. anything else. You know, as you do. <laughs> I didn't have much of a thought on Monty, to be honest, because he is barely... But it is a good point. He is barely there, and that's one of the problems with this story. I've got no context in this. Mm -hmm. You know, I'm told who the characters are. I'm not given their background. I don't know what Julian's business is. I don't know where in the world we are. I don't know what Sadie's background is. Has she just left school? It almost sounds like she's just left school, but I don't know. It might account for some of the immaturity that we see in Sadie. Mm -hmm. And the... Monty isn't given a background, you know, why does he think he knows these film producers and people? Does he actually have a position where he is, or is he just some sort of white boy who says, come to London with me, dear? I love the premise, I love these little old Hollywood stories that popped up in The Friend, but this is definitely the worst of them. That was that's something else that occurred to me. Why is Julian in New York and not in Hollywood? 
Was there a film industry in yeah, New York? Yeah, there was still. I think Fox was still predominantly based in right. New York around that time. And I think that's, that's the bit I liked about this. I mean, the plot is, is ridiculous, but I liked the way the, the author wove the cinema into this story. Mm -hmm. I thought it was really clever. Some really nice, almost sort of ecrastic elements. Where, um, so you get this sort of lovely bit towards the beginning. I mean, it's not lovely, but as Julian's leaving and uh, he half closes the door and he, said, he did notice that Sadie was trembling slightly and the light was not sufficient for him to see the sudden pain in her eyes. So the writer's using chiaroscuro there to sort of almost cuff part of her face. And I thought oh, that was quite a nice touch. That was quite mm. a, a clever thing to do. And then just nice uh, observation. Well, I there's a couple. That. There's a few of these. I mean, there's a bit as well where, um, where just after she goes, uh, for a f what was it says for a moment the future star in Vericomans stood where he had left her. The piano sounded from upstairs. So straight away you get right, this kind of brought in of the orchestration, well. <laughs> sort of orchestration, and then you get to Sadie's first week in the town that passed like a flash. It seemed to consist of a series of introductions and interviews. So you've got this Eisensteinian montage element coming in as well. So they sort of, I thought it was quite skillful the way they've kind of brought some of this in. Are you making me look at this story in a whole new yeah, way? Yeah, <laughs> that's really fun. Well, you know, it's, it's one of I mean, that's the bits I, I liked about it. I mean, yeah, there's this, the story, the plot itself. I mean, we all kind of knew where it was going and don't agree the, the way it got there, fair enough. <laughs> but I, I could see that, the, that I, I felt that the writer had had some skill. Yes. Um, but it, it, yeah, when you look back in some of the, some of what you're saying, you do kind of think, mm, I wonder, wonder if you could have been aimed slightly better. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I did like as well the, the very end when the, I know you don't like this bit where he's sort of shocked with his appearance on screen, but I thought that was quite cinematic as well. That cut straight away, I thought it was quite clever um, in its own way. I was so blinded by my hate of Julian <laughs> that I didn't, I didn't see. I, yeah, it's, it's the writing, it's fine. It's just the subject matter. <laughs> but the, the, you make a very good point. There is some really cool techniques in it. I feel like I want to argue with Marion's point about Monty. Because mm -hmm. um, there's a couple of lines about Monty in there that um, means he might not be the villain. True to his word, Monty did all he could for her. Okay, I missed that. And then later on, it says Sadie had managed. Oh, with her sensitive pride, Sadie had managed to keep it from even Benson that she was not a success. All right, I will give you those points. There was so a, not quite Monty, the villain. You Monty's thought. just thoughtless. Then he's yes. not a complete villain. Yes. Yeah. But the Monty is just one of several who are just kind of hanging on, you know, in, in her wake in some ways. I mean, it's, it's alluded to several times that she's obviously very popular with, with guys. And, the, you know, they all seem to go out of their way to try and help. All right, one of them could have done a little more, but I mean, <laughs> I don't. The impression I got from the, the early part of this was she, she'd taken a lot of this for granted, that she was just expecting just to be, like, the red carpet was going to be rolled out for her. Uh, you know, landing in London and, you know, the fireworks were going to go off and, you know, it was never going to happen. That was the impression I got and I thought that was kind of the model the, the, the writer was going for. Would you stay a year if you thought everything was going to happen in five minutes? Is she... That's, that's, her, that's her pride, a, that's the hoover again. That's, that's her pride. Shot. Yeah, well, yeah, it, talk, it does talk of perseverance. It does talk maybe yeah. that is, maybe that redemption art there is her maturity and her, her growing up and understanding that actually, yeah, it's not all going to be quite as easy and breezy as you think. Um, but again, there's going to be a certain amount of that you can tell by, by the character, the way she's written. That's, that's a lot of pride in there, mm -hmm. you know, just ref, uh, refusing to back down and you know, admit defeat until. Like say she's completely broken, which is a bit regrettable. But <laughs> at the same time, though, going back to Marion's point about the fact that we don't know anybody's background, could, what was her financial situation? Could she afford to give up? Like she'd kind of. Well, she lasted had, a year in London, so I'm I'm guessing that mum and dad are pretty well off. Yeah, because she had some she savings. I didn't get the impression that she was quite well off. That she was from a well-off family. I got, but that the, was maybe I got the impression me. that she had a. a, a bank of money because it said she'd started to go broke not that she like completely lost everything so she must have had something tied but was she over. not working somewhere did i make yeah, that up no later she on working, she took yeah. a job as a clerk but even then she had to poor little thing she had to take a rubbish wage because she'd no experience in <laughs> being a clerk but the, but this is on barry's point of view but it's if she's naive and thinks that everything's going to be rolled out for her thought or or didn't have 
the experiences she should ha- she should have had. It's it's more that she's been disempowered by the society that she's in, rather than it being her own fault. Do you know what I mean? Like she didn't have, like Marion said earlier, there wouldn't have been the means to do a lot of stuff. And just because she's been given all this attention from men and patronized and belittled and looked after by men, is that her fault that she then thinks things are going to be quite easy? Is my thought. <laughs> Well, I mean, again, I come back to this, you know, how, how fully realised was this dream? It's, it all seems a bit one-dimensional. Uh, I mean, when she's looking at this this picture of the film star in the magazine and punching it in the face and saying, I've got nicer eyes than her. Well, okay. But can you can you meet your marks? Can you do the physical comedy? What's your back? Can you dance? I mean, you know, what what do you bring to the what do you bring to the table, Sadie? What do you, you know... Well, she can dance because w- she's been cutting her dances in half well, to accommodate true, all the partners. That's true, but can she, can she tap? I mean, you know. I would wager that if Julian's Julian's dream also might not have been as as fully realised, or maybe it was a bit of a punt for him as well. But no, it wasn't it because look, out his, great. his his appearance was sitting at a desk, which was something he'd been doing for a very long time. He'd prepared for that part. He'd method that. But it, it just feels like a tale of this woman can't go and do this without having all the evidence and experience and back track, whereas the man can just turn up and do it because he's a man. <laughs> yeah, with you. That was the feeling I got from it. Okay, great. <laughs> no, I, I agree too. Although- Sorry, Barry, maybe we should have got some more <laughs> male representation on this panel. <laughs> If we get a bit outnumbered. Did anyone else, pardon me for saying this, but just think the story was just a bit bland? It was just a bit plodding along and boring? Uh, yeah, I, again, I, I mean, it, give it this, it definitely made you feel things. Do you know what I mean? Like, it definitely got the emotions going. I, I was fuming. Um, but I other than become, that, there's not much to it, yeah. I didn't become fuming until the end. Um, on, I was just reading it, thinking, is something going to happen? And I expected something to happen and then really nothing did. I had little anger spikes on the way through as they were being nasty to each other. Yeah. But after Barry said that bit about the sort of technical qualities in the writing, I'm more forgiving of it Okay. as a technical piece. I also liked Barry's point that they do have an antagonistic relationship and there is a read of it where it's quite bantery and like that's that's fine like we've seen relationships in these stories like that before where they have this like really fun playful banter but it just feels a bit too one-sided from julian to sadie like she's not really getting many quips in the other way is she it's just very much like oh you you little dear like it could have done with more humor i think yeah and maybe that would have fleshed that out a wee bit more more it would it would have worked had she been able to get more humor in it Possibly. And it's, soften the soften them yeah. a little. You know, they can start off kind of that hard antagonistic thing, but there's been a progression towards mm-hmm. it rather yeah. than this sort of out of the blue. So what do we think of the story for the friends today? <laughs> I um I would have her become the film star and be wildly successful and then on, on her deathbed she's like, Oh, remember Julian. But yeah, would what would we do with it to put it in the friend today, or would we even go near it? I think I think I could rewrite it for, <laughs> so that it would be suitable for the friend today, but it would need a completely different ending. And I think more background would need to go into it and there would have to be some attempt at communication and they before they bumped into each other. An actual mm. equal relationship rather than... Yeah, or, or, or just... Or one as that grows say, a bit more together, yeah. even if it's not equal. Or making sure that it the, it says she said, oh, her eyes were brimming with mischief when they're having their back and forth. Um, I think it's probably quite a talent of writers to actually be able to put down on paper when there's comedy in something mm-hmm. rather than it would be on screen when it's when you can see by expressions and mannerisms and mm-hmm. things. Um, I just think maybe that this writer didn't have that that ability to, to bring across the comedy if mm-hmm. I assume it was intended, but just wasn't didn't like take it off. Have been, yeah. mm-hmm. It's kind of a show don't tell, isn't it? Yes. Moving on to ratings out of five, <laughs> I, th- I think it'll be interesting to start with Barry on this one. A solid three. Okay. 
And that's what it really is just because I quite like some of the technical aspects of this person's writing. Yeah, that's fair. That's about it. Ah, that makes me want to give it more. But I'm still going to give it a one. (laughs) Sorry. (laughs) Jackie? I would give it a two. Um, It didn't grip me at all. And I did not like... I didn't like the relationship. I found it confusing. And overall, I didn't like either of the main characters. Yeah, I'm afraid I'm going to be a two as well. Just from the point of view of a lot of the exchanges felt very unkind. I thought we were missing some context. But... I will go back to it and reread it because I do like this thing that Barry said about the technical stuff. Fair dues. We shall leave it on that note. But before we go, I did just want to take a moment to say that this is Chris's last episode and listeners won't know Chris, but the podcast wouldn't be here without him. So I just wanted to give a little shout out. He's always in the background of our panels. <laughs> but yeah, pulling the strings <laughs> silently. Um, and yeah, the podcast literally wouldn't be here without him. So, round of applause for Chris. We will miss you. <laughs> Good luck, for Good luck with what next, Chris. Good luck. And on that note, thank you to Alex for reading the story for us, and to Jackie, Marion, and Barry for joining us for the discussion, and always to you for listening. All that's left for me to say is until this week group of friends gets together again for another story from the friend to you, cheerio. Thanks again for joining us for this episode of Reading Between the Lines. Follow on your podcast app today so you don't miss out on our next story and check our previous episodes for more from the friend archives. We would be delighted if you were to recommend this podcast to your friends. If you don't already get the People's Friend magazine delivered, because you listen to Reading Between the Lines, you have an exclusive offer to subscribe to get your first 13 issues for just £6. Check the episode notes for details and terms. And for more from The People's Friend, visit thepeoplesfriend.co.uk, subscribe to our newsletter, or find us on Facebook and Twitter. Here's to you back. There's a dainty little journal that is read both far and near. It has had a host of rivals, still it stands without a peer. It is bright and entertaining from the first page to the end, and is known to its admirers as the dear old people's friend. A charming little journal is the friend. Of good things it is such a happy blend. That to read it at your leisure is a pleasure without measure The friend to friends in trouble recommend They won't be happy till they get the friend